Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratise the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. This week's guest is Oscar and BAFTA award-winning costume designer, Nyla Dixon. First working in her home country of New Zealand on projects such as Xena, Warrior Princess and Peter Jackson's Heavenly Creatures, she soon rose to become one of Hollywood's go-to creatives after crafting the unmistakable costumes of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, as well as Blood Diamond, The Last Samurai and many more. It's 11pm here in London because Nyla is joining us from a beautiful New Zealand morning. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you, Mike. Very good to hear. Um, now, I'd, I'd like to start at the beginning because it's often documented with successful people that they rarely have a set path through their career. And you were certainly no different. So how did you go from selling your own fashion creations at the Cook Street Market to running a fashion magazine, you know, years later? Well, you have done your homework, haven't you? I've tried my best. It's a small country. It's a small country and it's really hard for those kinds of businesses to really gain traction. You know, like um, I began in fashion and um, then realized that I didn't like the fact that I couldn't go out and look at what everybody else was up to. You know, my curiosity about everything else that was going on was really stymied in that role. Mm. So um, I used to 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 facilitate um, having a fashion label, I used to um, work as a paste-up artist for a music magazine called Rip It Up. And um, the fabulous Murray Kamek, he, he um, in the end, one night he said to me, you know, here's $2,000, you can start a fashion magazine. Wow. Because I've been banging on about, you know, where are the fashion magazines and so on and so forth. So um, that led to probably the most wildly creative best times five years, um, which I spent working with a lot of up-and-coming writers, um, a lot of up-and-coming photographers, um, and a lot of up-and-coming designers. Um, so you can see where all that is leading. So after five years, there was one of those fabulous economic crashes, uh, which was 1987, and um, Murray had to cut back. And he said, Niley, you can take the magazine and go out and see if you can find someone to buy it, run it, um, be your, you know, managing director. And I just knew that that wasn't for me. I just knew that, you know, I, I, it, it just wasn't for me. So we shut it down. And, um, and there I was out on the pavement. Um, and I started styling. I was styling for commercials, for bands, you know, like inevitably in that world, you get to know all these people. Of course, yeah. And, um, and then, you know, some crazy young director decided that... <laughs> um, <laughs> I should be the person to do the costumes for his first movie. And um, it was an absolute baptism of fire. The director was a, a man called Gregor Nichols, who's gone on to be a really um, successful um, commercials director. Mm. But one thing right here in this moment, I will say, you've really got to listen to your instincts. <laughs> 
Always and I could tell right from the get-go that this one was going to go wrong. But I was, you know, I had um, such limited knowledge that I just didn't feel it was my place to kind of go, um, this all feels wrong. And um, so you just bowl on. And actually, in that process, you meet extraordinary people. And that's part of the film industry, isn't it? It's in every job you do. I mean, when you're at your age, Mike, um, your circle is much bigger. But uh, what you find is that as the years go by, you you walk away from every project, possibly only with one or two people that you were determined to stay in touch with. But at the beginning of your career, you are right there with all of that energy and ideas and um, everything seems possible. Often there is a prevailing argument that in those early years, usually regarding smaller budgets, that people do have more creativity than when you rise up the tree and hit the blockbusters, the politics, etc. Would you subscribe to that viewpoint? No, I, I don't buy into that at all. I think they're all the same. Mm. I think when you're working on a small, you know, and I mean, honestly, that comes from having pretty much done done a lot. Um, you, you, everybody talks about how they long to get back to that place, you know, where they started, that energy and that. Um, but I don't, I don't find that that energy or excitement has gone anywhere. Um, and I just think it's just a um, all the problems are the same. They're just amplified on a larger show. So as long as you're really conscious of that, that is one way of kind of remaining level-headed when you're dealing with something that it seems, you know, when you when you pick up script and you meet the director and, um, you know, that you're suddenly in this rarefied atmosphere, the bottom line is I don't think that's the case at all. I think you're still working with a bunch of student filmmakers. Um, they, you know, ultimately that's what we all boil down to. And it's good to keep that. I think that's really interesting because often for the juniors, and there are lots of juniors who are listening to this podcast, you often hear from the seniors that there is this back in the day, the amazing back in the day and the open creativity and everything back in the day. But obviously you're here at the top of the industry saying that you do have those capacities to do that in the industry now, which is amazing. You totally do. And, um, you know, for all the gravitas of being at my age and stage in the industry, believe me, I'm as wide-eyed every time I go into a film. So maybe that's a peculiarity all of my own. That's great. I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier. You spoke about the 1987 crash when, was it Char Char magazine came down? Yeah. I'd love to know, were you frightened at that moment? I presume you didn't know at that point you were going to end up in the film industry. How did you feel at that time? I was miserable. You know, like I, I, I really felt like in that moment we were peaking. We sort of mm. found our feet. Um, if, when, if I look back on it now, I would have made quite a lot of different decisions at the time. Um, but we were doing really interesting things. And it's something that I find every now and then it's fun to go back and remind myself of that. You know, I was I was terribly depressed, but I had such a fantastic group of friends around me at that point in my life that they were just like, right, what are we going to do? You know, 
And, um, you know, we came up with a concept for a new magazine, um, which I still have tucked away, and we had a sort of brief flurry with it. I still think it was a brilliant thing. <laughs> um, but we were already moving on. You know, like sometimes you don't actually recognise it until you're in it, but you are, uh, you're, you've already moved on. Mm. You know, like even though you're um, you're wishing to be back in that place, another part and that is a is a great thing about being in that particular age group that you 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 don't realize that your your brain is going yeah all very well Nyla but let's go over here because this looks really interesting and that's really cool to hear and it sounds like from that and also there was stuff you were talking about with you making your own designs at Coo Street Market etc that you were a bit of a self starter and is that something that you think that juniors moving into the industry now could use to get hold now and maybe when you're hiring you might look for you know for a while recently whenever anybody brought up the subject of my past and how I got into the film industry I always wanted to say this is really irrelevant to what is happening um you know with the up-and-comers um now that we're in this COVID world, I don't feel that way anymore. I sort of feel like we've cycled back to much more of a um, a view that education and degrees and art college aren't really um, the answer. Um, no, hang on, that's not true. Aren't <laughs> everything? You know, like because we've we've got a whole bunch of people in the industry now who've who've been through all the colleges mm. and, you know, and education and degrees and all of those sorts of things. Um, whereas I think now we might be having a whole new group of people who are just getting out there and doing stuff or sitting in their house and, you know, getting on um, Illustrator or Photoshop and creating characters and writing things and, just doing it because they can figure out how to do it, you know, whether it's um, whether YouTube and um, online seminars and all sorts of things are the new tools for them. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more self-starter, a lot less. And, and I think it's going to really surprise young people that actually they can do a hell of a lot more just by getting on with it. Definitely. And following on from that, you're obviously talking about the notion of education as well and college and people moving into the industry. You've mentioned before that people think the real career turning point for you was meeting a young Peter Jackson on Heavenly Creatures. But from my research, it seems powerfully clear that you actually view your long tenure on TV show Xena Warrior Princess as your education. What was it about that show that provided that? Yeah, that's an absolute truth. Um, it was Rob Tappet just the most remarkable producer, really remarkable. Rob arrived in New Zealand, Sam Raimi's producing partner. They had already done a kind of trilogy, um, you know, like just to kind of sell the concept of Xena. It wasn't Xena then, it was um, Hercules. And um, they then decided that they were going to go into Hercules as a full-on TV series, which was when the job was offered to me. And um, here was one of those moments where you meet someone who has um, real financial nerf along with crazy creative ideas. And 
a person willing to let HODs just run amok and give you the tools to do that with. And um, and so really the only deadline or the only the only um, issue for us was the ten day ten day turnaround on those episodes. And wow. um, and we did. I think I probably I don't know. It wasn't for that long. Hercules. All of a sudden, it was like Rob wanted to do Xena as well. And so mm. suddenly, I was doing two TV series simultaneously with ten day turnaround. <laughs> so a deadline every five days. And you know, it we just grew, and you were gathering in creative people and figuring out ideas, and everything was just a joy, a daily joy of um, what crazy script was going to land in front of you next, and um, and and you know, how the hell were you going to make all this stuff? Um, and yeah, it really, it really, truly was. Um, a great time. And in fact, since you've been the guy doing all this research, you would have read the bit where I said, I was really unsure that I wanted to leave Xena to go and do Lord of the Rings. I did read that. And there's a, there's a, there's an added bit to that. Um, I was in Rob Tappet's office or outside his office and he was yelling and screaming, you know, in his, fabulous way um in his de- detroit way <laughs> about the writers and how writers became useless after three years you know they were just repeating themselves and i was like but i've been on the show for five years <laughs> i'm just repeating myself. and that was what made the decision and i actually told rob that at one point i said i overheard that conversation and i realized that i was just it was time it was time And speaking of that, you've brought it up. I guess it's time to speak about Lord of the Rings. So we'll have a quick break and we'll be back in a minute. So what came next was, of course, Lord of the Rings that won you an Oscar and cemented you as part of the Hollywood landscape. While lots of attention is understandably directed at the success after the fact, I'd like to know what was it like before when yourself, Peter Jackson, Grant Major and Barry Osborne had your heads together in prep did you understand the mammoth you were undertaking filming all three films at once and the blood, tears and ultimately awards, I guess, that you were in for? No. <laughs> um, I'd read Lord of the Rings. We all read Lord of the Rings and generally read it, you know, somewhere between, I don't know, 16 and 25, don't you? Um, and I, you know, I've always been a great sci-fi fantasy reader anyway. Um I absolutely think Pete understood what he was getting into to a degree. And I really believe that um, Richard understood from Weta's point of view. Whereas I do think that I was much more naive um, about it. We didn't have much pre-time on that. So it was pretty nightmarish. Um, And... In many respects, that was an ongoing nightmare. With um, the one thing that saves any HOD from walking away from shows or losing heart or um, you know, sort of irrecoverable emotional damage <laughs> <laughs> on these kinds of projects is 
the moments which when everything comes together and they become like um, mining for gold. And then when you figured out how to mine for gold, you get better and better at it. Did you ever feel perhaps a little bit of imposter syndrome when you were making thousands of costumes with hundreds of crew every day? I still feel like I have imposter syndrome. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. Yeah, it, it's, um, I mean, every project is terrifying to me. You know, it's this, it's this extraordinary combination of excitement and terror. And if you've got both of those surging through you, you know you're doing the right thing. That's a great great turn of phrase. So don't be fooled by your aged HODs who appear to know what they're doing. Um, to a degree, they've got all kinds of experiences that, that, that are um, in their background to draw from, but it's always different. I mean, you must have had that experience already, Mike. There mm. is nothing predictable about the film industry, and that's perhaps what makes it so addictive. Absolutely. And the whole point of this podcast really is to kind of hear about people such as yourself saying things like this, because I feel like almost it would join the teams together because I do feel like sometimes the juniors go, oh, look, here comes Nyla with her, you know, her costume team all behind her. And um, <laughs> we want, it's great, amazing to know that you're in the same position as us in many ways. And thinking of those blockbuster movies, one of the things I have learned is that in a creative role like yours, lots of people don't realize that not only are you juggling design, but also the large scale management and budget of a large department. So what advice do you have to creatives that maybe want to move up the ladder but aren't necessarily confident yet in their left-hand side of the brain? Make sure that in your life you have developed a deep and abiding friendship with the person who is really good at managing the money. Um, I, don't, I, I really believe in supervisors and I believe really strongly in assistant designers. I think... Um, I think there is a, an argument to be said that an assistant designer is as crucial to any job as the designer, as is that supervisor. Um, I am kind of a slightly, well, I don't know actually, because I don't get to sit around and talk to other costume designers. I am very financially conscious. So actually mm. the first thing I always want to know is how much, what's the budget and um and that's a whole discussion we should have is about that aspect of it. Because I always like to know that I can produce what I, what I creatively want to with that amount of money. Yes. Um, and, and so that automatically means that you're going to have this conversation with your supervisor and that person is going to be the one who is going to tell you whether you're right or you're wrong. Um, and then that third spoke um, your assistant designer, if you're doing a large-scale production or even a medium-scale production, that's the person who's actually going to make it happen. I see. Well, that's really interesting. You know, I mean, I can, I can sit around and dream up, you know, extraordinary things, but there's got to be a reality check in there. You know, you, you, do, you do have a responsibility, that heavy word, <laughs> you do have a responsibility, and I'm not – talking so much to the production, but to your department to not give them something that's impossible to achieve. It's, it's part of what you should be able to be thinking about as a designer. What's my time frame? How much money have we got? We're going to go down this road. Speaking of your management style, this isn't actually a question, but just a funny thing for you, you might find interesting. 
Uh, during an interview for Return of the King, you said that you view your role as head of department as conductor of the orchestra. And I don't know if you know, but Aaron Sorkin gave nearly those exact same words, I play the orchestra, to Steve Jobs on screen many years later. So maybe you deserve a credit for that. <laughs> I, I still think that. You know, I, I actually, I really genuinely do think that. Um, I think that you have this... Like I have surrounded me and you've experienced it in the art department, Mike. I mean, I, I feel quite emotional about it because the people who work for me, um, I genuinely believe in many areas that they're so much goddamn cleverer and more creative than I am. So my ability to is or or my strength is to be able to kind of gather that together and focus it and get the best version and pull all that together and get it on screen. Um, so it's, it's, it's having that ability to get, um, to draw all of that out of people. I hope you're enjoying Red Carpet Rookies. If you'd like to support the show, you can get a two-month free trial of Skillshare, the Netflix of online courses, with a link in the podcast show notes. You can learn from topics including filmmaking, Photoshop, music production, and hundreds more. If you fancy yourself as a scriptwriter, you could even check out my beginner's course for professional screenwriting software, Final Draft. Whether it's Lord of the Rings, The Last Samurai, or Dracula Untold, it's clear that you're a go-to hire for world-building, as it were. How do you go about piecing together these vast tapestries, and how far do you root the work in realism? Yeah, um... It, it's interesting, you know, I can't, again, I've sort of fought that label for a while mm. um, because I like to wander about, you know, like I like to try all kinds of different genres. But I actually, at this age and stage, I truly believe that is what I love to do. I love to world build. I love um, that reading what is written and um, just immediately just going with the first vision, you know, like really um, um, because it often seems to be a very true one, you know, like it, 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 if you can get down on paper the emotional impact that the script or the story has on you in that first instance, if you can get that on paper, then that is your big picture and then you have this opportunity to begin to develop all of that and um and it is always one of those strange moments when you lay out your first thoughts with a director and um find out whether you are so wide of the mark or the two of you are just immediately simpatico or you've offered up something that they've never thought of before and they're incredibly excited about it there that that is um you know such great moments in um, design. It goes back to what you were saying earlier, I guess, about you going with your instincts and that first feeling when you read the script and what comes into your head straight away, presenting that. Yeah, I mean, Lord of the Rings is an interesting example of that. Um, I had such a clear picture of what those worlds should look like. And I, I'm, I don't know whether you know, but, you know, in every, actually in every department, probably except mine, um, there were the most devoted Lord of the Rings fans. You know, there were people who were there who were probably 
living on the smell of an oily rag just beyond <laughs> that production because, you know, their obsession with Lord of the Rings was. And so my view was that I was going to design it as I saw it. And then I used these people as my um, sort of touchstones, really, you know, like when we were a, 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 a distant into it and I really felt like the image was good. I would then, you know, drag one of these people in, whether it was, um, you know, the illustrators or, yeah. And it was just really interesting to see whether it fitted their vision of it. Mm. Um, And and the great thing was nine out of ten times it did. And so, and after a while, you've you've got the language. So once you've got the language, then you just get to flesh it out more and more as you go along the way. One of the phrases I've heard banded around a little bit with making films is we're not making a documentary. And with things like The Last Samurai, which obviously there's historical record of how certain people... <laughs> it is a documentary. It's a documentary. Tom Cruise was there. Um, how does that come <laughs> into your workflow, I guess? And, and how much do you care? Because I've heard people go, oh, you know, we're not making a documentary, which is totally understandable. I care. <laughs> um, <laughs> I and I think uh, New Zealanders have a particular affinity for Japan. Um, I'm not quite sure why, but we do. Mm. Um, and um, that to get that right meant everything to me. Um, we spent, I think, three weeks in Japan, myself and um, my two assistants, Lizzie and Bob, we went to Japan and we went around all of the museums and we went to all of the costume houses and we saw Kurosawa's armour. Wow. And in fact, part of, part of the point of that was to see what we could, you know, just hire. Well, the reality kicked in pretty damn quickly when you realise that, you know, Japanese people are like this big and Kiwis are healthy farming types. <laughs> It was not going to work, um, and um, at that, and so once we sort of studied all of this, we just went. We're going home. We're going to build this in New Zealand, and um, which is what we proceeded to do by, in some cases, actually downloading patterns for the armor off the internet, early internet too. Um, yeah, and we so we had all like you know we, we came back. No one does it anymore, do they? We're loaded down with books and references. I have the most vast reference library. Um, and it was, um, we employed a lot of young jewellers from art school, um, you know, to make all of the decorations that are on them. Um, anyway, so the true test of that was to take, to fly to Tokyo, to go to a studio and to be confronted with someone of Ken Watanabe's stature in the Japanese film industry and to hand him New Zealand-made samurai armour. And he was, um, and there were three of them there. um, And right from the get-go, they were not interested in us. Oh, really? No, they were not. And then they went out the back and we had them, dressed up in this armour, and this extraordinary change happened. They suddenly realised that the samurai armour that was being built in Japan for their samurai movies was really shonky. 
And that was actually what we had um, come to realise. It just wasn't doing justice to the quality of the original armour. And um, when they when they put the stuff on and they realised that this was just of such a quality, game over. We were best friends, and, and it was an it, you know filmmaking is full of these extraordinary moments. That's an extraordinary moment when you uh, when you take something which is so culturally heavyweight um, that you've built in you know a little Pacific country up at the bottom end of the world, and you take it to where that you know it was invented, was designed, it has thousands of years of history to it, and you go. Uh, yeah, so we we were very hand in glove. Um, there was a most extraordinary costume supervisor in Japan called um, Fukuda-san. So I became very close to him, and um, we also involved the um, the costumer to the emperor of Japan. Blimey! Um, so it was a documentary. Believe me. It is really bloody accurate, <laughs> that film. A magic moment, certainly. And I'd love to go on from that realism now to go to something totally different and talk about computer effects. So we'll be back after the break to talk about the future of the industry. The Green Lantern's CGI costume has been a matter of fierce debate now, which to my knowledge was a studio decision. Oh. He's still my beating heart. <laughs> this is a show full of pain and agony. <laughs> so I was going to say, with hindsight, how do you feel now about the look? And do you think this is something we might see more of moving forward? How, when I look back on that now, how naive I was. <laughs> how incredibly naive. And um, um, yeah, it, 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 there's a book in that. And it's a fascinating thing to look at all of the designs that were done for that mm. compared to what ended up on screen, which I genuinely, and I'm, you know, and I'm not trying to make myself feel better about this. There were, it was a genuinely, there were some genuinely really great ideas for that show. The politics of it were totally overwhelmed it. And, um, and I also think, it was, um, I think it was very, very hard for Martin Campbell, who is such a storyteller. He couldn't, it, you know, I just think it's a very hard thing to to go from, you know, he's a gritty storyteller, even doing a 007 movie, you're still dealing in real. Um, and I think there were so many lessons um, there. And, of course, at the same time, Marvel were just getting started and they just totally nailed it. There was a there was a discussion very early on, and um, about whether we were going to build the suit in real in the real world, or um, build it as a CGI. And um, I can remember this discussion so clearly, saying, "Well, there's got to be CGI in the suit somewhere, you know, like because we can build it, but." for movement and all kinds of things. There's got to be a CGI element. And it was, um, it became an absolute bottom line. It was one or the other. And so, of course, we said, well, CGI, because um, I can't build something that's going to operate um, to the level that we needed. But then, of course, 
Unfortunately, they completely bailed on the, the um, quality of the CGI. Mm. They totally bailed. So I guess we probably won't be seeing more of that in the future? You know, I really think we should. I really think we should, because if that had been in the hands of what was originally intended, an absolute A1 top CGI, sorry, VFX house, I think it would have been an entirely different ball game. And I remember being shown the first trailer um, and saying at the time, you're not putting that out, are you? Because that doesn't look finished. And the answer was no, 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 no. And the next morning it was out. And of course it was, you know, that was the beginning of the history. <laughs> Amazing to hear. Um so it sounds like obviously there was studio politics there and there's various gripes about the industry, obviously, in the press. Uh, I was going to ask you if there was one thing that you could change or, you know, or multiple. Is there one thing that you would change about the way the industry is run at the moment? I guess one of the things that I would change is, and, you know, everybody will laugh at me and go, you know, yeah, you're still naive, aren't you, Nyla? Um, it's, it's the financials as we begin our projects. And in this instance, I am now talking with the voice of long experience. And I have, and I say this now because I have the same discussions. I suffer from the same um, uh, pushbacks now as I did 25, 20 years ago, whatever. Um, but what I do know as a, as a designer is that the budget I write at the beginning is pretty much the budget we will hit at the end. And in that process, we will be beaten up and beaten up and beaten up and beaten up, <laughs> uh, forced to take things out, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not saying there aren't a million reasons for this. I just wish they would find a new um, roadmap for how they deal with it. Because in... Or, and I'm sure you would hear this in the art department as well. You'd hear it from DPs. Um, but I, I do know because actually quite recently I did a comparison with about 10 budgets of mine. Um, and so you cut and cut and cut and cut. And then as the show moves along, they have to add and add and add and add. And it just, you know, mm, it, it, it comes back to that place, um, you know, give or take 10%. I think it begs the question whether everybody knows this and this is a game that has to be played. Therefore, to me, an enormous loss of creative energy while all these battles are had. Or they, they really don't know and therefore shouldn't be in the job. There we go. I understand. I understand. Am I being a little too frank for a podcast? I think you're in a position to do that, Nyla. Once you've got an Oscar, you can do what you want, really. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of being frank, one of the things I would be interested to hear your opinion on is, given that costume is one of the only areas that doesn't usually have a male majority, do you feel that the job of equating gender in a department is quote-unquote done? Or are there still old issues at play? I would say in the last forever, financial discussions that I have had have been the women of the costume department versus the men of the finance department. And I see that mm. as a genuine A-grade problem. Um, I still think somewhere um, um, 
there, there is a, a low-grade sexism that that lies there. Um, uh, there's, there's still this vague, you know, what do they know about handling, you know. I mean, it's not, it's not re- really in your face, but it mm. is there. And um, I, but I also have to say, on the other hand, in recent shows that I've worked on, um, while I've, I do have these, you know, and this is predominant, this business of, um, you know, cut the budget, cut the budget, cut the budget, at which point I go, cut the script, cut the script, cut the script. <laughs> um, um, I have, there are some great producers still. I just think they're fewer and farther between. I think, uh, um, I still think the costume department is is seen as um, something that they don't really understand and therefore it's trouble and, um, yeah, which is utter and complete bollocks. We are as financially clear as any other department we are as emotional as any other department and we are as um, creative as every other department they deal with. It should be a level playing field. I don't think it is. Uh, thank you very much for that frank answer. So we'll take a little break now and we'll be back with a final little questionnaire with Nyla Dixon. So finally, at Red Carpet Rookies, I like to do my version of the James Lipton in the Actors Studio questionnaire. And it's quick fire, Nile, so just say whatever comes into your head. Are you ready? I don't know. Am I? I hope so. So number one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, God. Um, Have a very clear focus on the big picture. Have a very clear focus on the detail. And do not confuse the two. Very interesting. Number two, do you have a favourite film? 1900, Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed for an early call time? Nothing. <laughs> what profession other, and, other than your own would you like to attempt? And a secondary question, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? I don't know. It's easy to fall into it. Those are the tough questions i'd go back to be i'd like to be an editor again okay um but i won't be and um second question within the industry well we all want to be the writer don't we i do yeah you know and 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 i just say that in the sense that we all want to be the writer but you also learn how bloody hard it is so you get on with it mike i'll try my best Number five, what general profession would you not like to do? Crikey, mortician. If you could work with one person, living or dead, who would it be? Ooh, living or dead. Mm-mm-mm. A lot. <laughs> That's a big one. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Very broad canvas. Like, honestly, yeah, you got me on that one. Um, living or dead. Well, you've worked with a lot of the ones who are alive, so I guess you'd probably choose one of the dead ones. Yeah. No, you've got me. No. You have to skip that question. Skip that one. Too many good ones. Mm, Pass. This one is the hardest one. What is a book that everyone should read? Something I'm reading right now, and I've been reading for a little while. It's called A Paragon. A Paragon. That's going on the list. 
A Paragon um, by Colin McCann. It's an extraordinary story to all I can say. It's got nothing to do with films or fashion or frocks. It's profound. Um, you can only read a little bit at a time, so you can put it by your bed. <laughs> and I know when I get to the end of it, I'm going to go back to the beginning and start reading it again. Amazing. That's an amazing answer. And finally, my question is normally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? But given it's you, Nyla, I must ask you, who did you thank and why? Oh, anyone who says they weren't a wreck when they're in that moment is um, hitting themselves or they've won a few. Um, the one person I didn't thank was Janice McEwen, who was my supervisor on that job. And I went down the list and I thanked my assistant, my assistant designer. I, am, I thanked producers and Peter and Fran and all of these people. Uh, and and when I, as soon as I was walking off the stage, I remembered Janice and I knew that I couldn't go back. Um, so she was the first person I rang and, um, and I've been mortified ever since which brings back my earlier thing about how important supervisors are. Exactly. And on that circular note, we'll be ending the episode there. Thank you so much to Nyla Dixon for joining me today. Incredible stories and insights from an incredible career. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To keep updated, you can follow Red Carpet Rookies on Instagram and Facebook, RC Rookies Pod on Twitter, or contact us at redcarpetrookies at gmail.com. And please do subscribe or drop us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.